Hi there, I'm Haley. And I'm Sophie. And we are your Perspectives podcast hosts. The Perspectives podcast is a graduate-run program exploring various public health topics in an effort to learn from experts in the field and the community from varied backgrounds and areas of inquiry. We explore topics within and outside of standard public health discourse, but our conversations relate to subjects that impact all of us on various levels of well-being. We're glad you're here and we're excited to learn alongside you. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Could you introduce yourself to us? Okay. I'm Erica Hagen, and I'm a sleep researcher, and I work here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Department of Population Health Sciences. And I am Paul Papard. I'm a professor of population health sciences and also a sleep researcher. And what interested you both about sleep research specifically? How did you get started with this? Well, so I think of myself as an epidemiologist first. My training is in epidemiology, and I was trained mostly in longitudinal observational studies. And so I came with that, or I come with that perspective to sleep. And that's the kind of work that we do here. So I came to sleep after my training. I wasn't trained in sleep during grad school and have learned sleep over the last 11 years. Well, I've been working with this cohort and with Dr. Prepard in this department. So I kind of came in to sleep after my training and have become a sleep researcher through this work. And my introduction to sleep was partially happenstance. There was a faculty member in our department back in the 1990s who was a pioneer in the field of sleep epidemiology. I mean, nobody knew what that was. It was being invented at that time. And she asked me if I would want to be involved. And she had just gotten a grant from NIH to do some pioneering sleep epidemiology stuff. And I said, sure, sounded interesting. Uh, so I, I was interested because it was a nascent field. I mean, it was just, the, the meetings were small. The number of people in the world who would call themselves sleep epidemiologists at that time, you could count on one, maybe two hands. And so it was a wide open field and very exciting in, in that sense. It's matured over you know, the following generation. But that's what got me involved was this just brand new and so many questions to, to ask. It was startling to me when I learned about the existence of this new field, that this thing that we do a third of our life had been not been deeply investigated by the epidemiology community, which had been around, you know, with professional societies and all that sort of thing for like over a hundred years. And we're mm-hmm. finally getting around to this thing that we spend so much of our time doing. And when was all of that? When did you get started in it? I wrapped up a master's degree focused on environmental epidemiology in 1993 or four or something like that. And then I was immediately asked as I transitioned to the PhD program if I wanted to go into sleep epidemiology. So it was mid-early 90s. Okay. So it's still relatively new to the field of research. Yeah. And what do your current projects look like? So right now we are working on a project that focuses on exposures during midlife, your exposure to sleep quality and sleep duration over midlife years and how that affects cognitive trajectories in later life. So this is within the context of the Wisconsin Sleep Cohort Study, which started just before Paul got involved in the late 1980s. 
And this group of people has been followed since then. And we are lucky enough to now be working with that same group of people. So there is a wealth of data from their midlife years. And now, well, many of them are quite old. The mean age is about 75, but we've got people who are into their 90s. So we are able to use the cognitive data that's been collected all this time to look at trajectories. And then they're very well-characterized sleep over their midlife years. So that is one of our current projects that I'm leading, but there are a whole bunch of other things that are going on in this cohort as well. Yeah. And I'll talk about two of them. One is very parallel to Erica's cognitive trajectories project, which is looking at sleep duration and sleep quality in midlife, predicting weight gain or weight loss and metabolic health trajectories in later life. So those are both grants that are funded by the NIH. Then we also have a funded project looking at the prevalence of a condition called idiopathic hypersomnia, which translated means there are some people who are very sleepy all the time, despite getting adequate sleep for which we cannot explain the source of their sleepiness. It isn't due to sleep apnea. It isn't due to them not getting enough sleep. It isn't due to them having shift work issues. So that's the idiopathic part. And then the hypersomnia just means super sleepiness. So we don't know how many people have idiopathic hypersomnia because those cases end up in clinics and there isn't really a a population base for estimating the prevalence of that. And we have most of the right tools to be able to do a pretty good job of that. So that's another funded project we have right now. And then there's just all sorts of side projects where an investigator comes to us from some other institution and says, we know what kind of data you have. We'd like to ask this kind of question of your data. And then often we'll end up collaborating with those investigators. And then another thing that we sort of have going right now is that about five years ago, something called the National Mm -hmm. Sleep Research Resource uh, was funded by NIH, where we put some of our data, a subset of our data for which our informed consent's allowed to be publicly accessible. Those are available through uh, an NIH website, and there's an approval process. And I would say about two to three requests from around the world every year to access our data, to ask all sorts of different questions every week what did I just say you said every year two to three two to three a week yeah yes it's a lot <laughs> hundred <a> lot. <laughs> requests mm-hmm. and then Erica and I go through that approval process we look mostly we're looking for is this really science is is there not a commercial interest involved here because our our consents don't uh, allow us to do that sort of thing but we're pretty wide open about approving that for all sorts of different projects so i'd say the most common type of project that people want to use our data for are machine learning we we generate a lot of information as people sleep through the night and we get different channels of what their brain is doing and what their breathing is doing and people from around the world are interested in using different type of computer algorithms to try to glean as much information they can as about sleep from those data and are you only looking at the sleep that people get at night or are you also taking into account naps throughout the day we also investigate naps i mean we ask people about taking naps so we have some self-reported data about frequency of napping. We also get some information from sleep diaries. That's part of our data collection process. When people have an exam, we send them home with a sleep diary. So we collect a week of sleep, no matter what time of day they're getting that sleep. And then we also do have some studies that we did specific 
that are called nap studies where we try to, if they're mostly about how sleepy people are, like how quickly they fall asleep if you, they have an opportunity to nap. So we have some of that data that's collected in lab as well. Okay. So I guess just speaking more generally, could you give us an overview of why sleep is so important? I mean, we all do it. We all need it. But what about sleep is so important to humans? Sure, I'll take this one. The issue here is if you ask why sleep is important, there's such a multidimensional response I can give. And, you know, you could take a semester long class to try to address this. So I'll try to do it quickly. I will give a multidimensional answer. Uh, foremost, without sleep, we die. It's, it's a vital uh, component of our existence. It's like food. And actually, if there, there is a condition called fatal familial insomnia, where people are unable to sleep and eventually they have psychiatric manifestations and, and, and die. Probably uh, around the time course over months of, of, of starvation. So it is in some sense like food. It's vital. Furthermore, and more commonly at issue is that we know that inadequate sleep or poor quality sleep is associated with a host of outcomes, including reduced cognitive functioning, mood disorders, reduced quality of life, metabolic dysfunction, et cetera. I mean, the list goes on. And then from a public health significance standpoint, it checks a lot of the public health significance checkboxes. Sleep disorders are common. They're often treatable. They're often screenable in some way. And they have uh, specific poor outcomes associated with them, including the ones that I just mentioned, as well as things like possibly cancer, definitely cardiovascular disease, uh, and all the way up to uh, increased rates of death associated with some more of the serious sleep disorders. So it's important for a lot of different mm -hmm. reasons. Um, some of the most fundamental why is sleep important is, is under active investigation. Like why do humans need to spend eight hours of their time laying down uh, removed from environmental input. There are theories out there. Most of them have to do with if you have a big, smart brain, you need to set aside time during the day to uh, essentially process the information that you learned or took in during the day. And that, and that particular processing is not really compatible with being up and walking around and taking in the environment. Um, so there are some fundamental questions about why this has evolved why sleep has evolved to look like it looks like in human beings. But the answer to why it's important is pretty clear. Without it, you die with poor or inadequate sleep. You have all sorts of uh, bad things, uh, bad health outcomes associated with it. And are there certain groups of people who are most affected by lack of sleep? Or are there trends in your findings? I mean, yeah, lots of... <laughs> People who don't get enough, I mean, as Paul is talking about, there's, you know, it, everybody needs it. And so it's important for everybody. But there are some groups of people, various, you know, various categories of people who are more likely to get inadequate sleep. So adolescents are a group of people who frequently are underslept or, you know, they, they're for various reasons. So there's developmental reasons why their, their circadian clock gets shifted later, and that this isn't always compatible with the constraints in their lives, like school start times. 
And then there's also lots of competing reasons why they might stay up later than it's best for them. Lots of those developmentally related, like they are, you know, they're supposed to be having lots of social interactions and they are. And then there's also, you know, demands of school and the activities that kids get involved with. So anyway, there's a whole host of reasons why adolescents don't get sufficient sleep. Shift workers are another group that frequently the schedules that they're constrained by are out of alignment with what their natural circadian rhythm demands. And so being out of alignment is problematic for getting sufficient sleep. And then also just because of, you know, social role constraints and their work constraints, there's frequently not enough time to get enough sleep. People in their elderly years struggle with getting sufficient sleep for different reasons, and then over the last like 10-ish years, there's been sort of like a, an increased or new focus on evaluating racial and ethnic differences and in, in how much sleep people get and how adequate their sleep is. So non-white populations tend to not get recommended amounts of sleep as, as much as white populations do. They are also more likely to have poor sleep efficiency, which means the amount of time you're spending in bed, you're not getting as much sleep during that time. And there's more variable sleep timing patterns for non-white populations. And there's some evidence that white people more frequently suffer from insomnia. So it does seem like there's differences across racial and ethnic groups. You know, the reasons for this are probably mostly due to environmental and social exposures that are not distributed evenly and equitably across racial and ethnic groups. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the root cause of so many disparities, too. So yeah. that no logically, that makes sense. And it's still, nonetheless, frustrating and difficult to fix. Yeah, and the way to fix it is to really address, like you're saying, those root causes, like mm-hmm. neighborhoods that people live in and the housing conditions that they live in and the roles and constraints mm-hmm. in their built environment and then their social roles. And yeah, those social determinants of health. Exactly. So in your research, I guess, however recent or distant the research was, what has been some of of the most surprising findings? So I've selected two. Uh, Sometimes we're surprised by what we don't find. You write Mm -hmm. a big grant and you Mm -hmm. go looking for something that you're pretty Mm -hmm. sure is there. And, and, you know, that happens in any science endeavor and science career. So Sometimes we're surprised by it. We thought that something would be there and it's not. But two interesting cases of, I didn't think there was something there or what I thought was going to be there turned out to be very different over the last couple of decades. One was starting in about the 2000s. So when I came into the sleep field, I've also been interested in physical activity from a research perspective throughout this whole stretch of the last few decades. I knew that when you were awake, you burn more calories just to live and exist than when you sleep. So my assumption when I was a grad student was that if you got less sleep, you would be leaner because you were awake more and therefore burning more calories. Data coming out of the University of Chicago and other places, and then our own group in the early 2000s. So experimental data from the University of Chicago, epidemiologic observational data from our group from the early 2000s showed just the opposite. People who didn't get enough sleep were actually more likely to be heavier than people who got adequate sleep. And both the observational data and the experimental data pointed a finger at metabolic regulation. 
basically, if you don't get enough sleep, it looks like you alter levels of appetite regulating hormones in such a way that you lead to people eating more than they otherwise would eat, despite there being a slightly higher calorie cost to being awake than to being asleep, all else equal. So all else is not equal is the, is the issue. Um, people eat more. Furthermore, for most people in the United States, food, whether it's of high quality or low quality, is, is plentifully available. And if you're awake at 10, 10 p.m. instead of asleep at 10 p.m. and you're like me, you're probably stopping in the kitchen and snacking. So there's just a, you know, there's more opportunities to eat calories during the consume calories when you're when you're awake. So that was a surprise. It was counter to what my what I thought I understood about the caloric burdens of being awake versus asleep. And, and then what you actually observe once you collect good data. The other thing that surprised me, and this is more recently, and there's a little story behind it, which is I went to a scientific meeting in Barcelona and met a researcher from Spain who had just done, we, we don't do animal experiments, but, but this was a gen, general sleep conference around sleep apnea where this researcher had put melanoma tumors on rats and then randomly exposed the rats to, actually it might've been mice, rodents. Let's go with rodents and randomized the mice to either be exposed to a sleep apnea like state or, or normal sleep. And it turns out that the tumors grew considerably quicker, like a lot quicker on the mice that were exposed to sleep apnea. And that was like, wow, that's interesting and scary. And so that researcher that, uh, that we interacted with asked us if we could look in our data to see if there was some association between sleep apnea and cancer in our own data. And now we didn't have good sort of cancer incidence data, but we have cancer mortality. So we went and we looked in our own data and lo and behold, it was like a five-fold higher rate of cancer mortality amongst people with sleep apnea than who didn't have sleep apnea. Wow. This was sort of fall off your chair surprise. The field as a whole, the sleep apnea field as a whole was not looking much at cancer. We were looking at cognition and cardiovascular disease, and it seems sort of natural to look at those things. So that was very much a surprise. Now, the metabolic stuff that I talked about first, that's held up over time. There's like no question. Inadequate sleep and metabolic dysfunction have been linked solidly. The Cancer and sleep apnea question, that's more recent, and we're about the strongest association that's been found amongst all of the groups that have looked at this question. So it's still more of an open question. There's still surprises to be had for sleep apnea and and cancer. That's really interesting and really surprising too. And I mean, it is allowing you to continue doing your research, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Dr. Hagen, what have been some of the surprising findings for you? He took them. I don't have. (laughs) (laughs) So then I'm, I guess, moving forward, what could you say to someone currently having a hard time getting enough sleep? Sorry, I'm an academic. I have to start with, well, it depends. (laughs) I'm not a sleep clinician. So I would ask a few questions that if it became obvious that we're talking about a, a, a potentially serious sleep disorder, my first piece of advice would be go talk to a health professional. You're probably going to start with a, a generalist, uh, family medicine or an internist or 
pediatrician, et cetera. And then hopefully that person has adequate training to recognize that, a, that you might need to be referred to a sleep specialist. So that I would say that to you know, a friend who came up to me and said something like, I get enough sleep, I snore a lot, I have headaches, I've been taking my blood pressure and it's high blood pressure. These things to me sound like sleep apnea, but I'm not a clinician. So I'd say, go to your primary care physician, tell them about these symptoms and make sure you ask is, do you think I should be referred for, uh, to a sleep specialist? If it was more like how I sleep, like I'm, I don't quite get enough sleep and, uh, I'm, I spend too much of the day, a little bit sleepy, that sort of thing. My general advice would be the sort of advice that sleep professionals everywhere give, which is prioritize sleep as a, a health factor. Just like you might think about diet and exercise, sleep should be on that short list of things that you just give a health priority to. Standardize your sleep schedule. Don't be in the habit of, you know, 1030 on work nights, but then 2am on weekends. That's gonna You're going to pay a price for, for that lack of standardized sleep schedule as much as you can. No screens or like TV watching in the bed. That sort of stimulation makes it harder to fall asleep. No alcohol use or caffeine use before bedtime, that sort of thing. Give those things a try, like really try. <laughs> and if after doing that, you don't find that you're getting enough restful sleep, then again, it's time to talk to a professional. They seem like such easy behavior changes, right? Yet so many people have such a hard time doing that. And I mean, I, for one, still struggle to get enough sleep. And when I do it, I sometimes struggle falling asleep or yeah, don't sleep as deeply as I would like. And it is unfortunate and surprising and saddening how many people, how, how, how long it takes so many people to figure out the things that we need as humans to get good sleep or the things that we have to do to ensure that we get good sleep. If you know, it takes so long for some people to realize that, if ever. Yeah, agreed. And, and, and generally speaking, I mean, those of us who are health professionals or health scientists, we know the list of things you're supposed to do, though very few of us check all of the boxes on a very right. basis, whether it's diet, exercise, sleep, etc. Sleep is probably one of those things that probably isn't in the same mental list of diet and exercise that diet and exercise is, and it should be moved into that mental list. Mm -hmm. But even if you do move it in, yeah, I mean, my diet is shameful at times. And I sometimes will have a, a drink before bedtime as well. I mean, it's just human. Exactly. Exactly. How do you anticipate the attitudes around sleep will change in the future? Do you well, think people will be moving it to be in that priority list? I do think that it will be. I mean, as Paula was talking and I was thinking about this next question, I was thinking mm -hmm. about that because I think just like the field of sleep epidemiology is relatively new. I mean, the sleep as a medical specialty is also relatively new. I don't exactly know when it started, but I think kind of around the time that sleep epidemiology was a thing, it was becoming a specialty that physicians go into. And so I think, you know, it does take a long time for things to be elevated up to the place that they need to be in in this, you know, in the short list. And I also think that another sort of social shift 
is probably underway in terms of short sleep being like this badge of honor and a status sort of thing. Like I'm so important that I don't even have time to sleep. I think that sort of feeling was much more of a thing. I don't know, you know, 15 years ago. And I think that's changing a little bit. And I'm hopeful that as it becomes more of a thing on people's checklists, that it will also change in terms of people's perceptions of how it does really affect so many aspects of your health. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. in particular about the current state of, you know, the mental health crisis that we're experiencing for everybody, and especially among adolescents and young people, and how sleep might be one of the very important things to be on the table as something that gets prioritized in young people's lives to help with what feels like kind of an exploding crisis. So I think there's reasons to be optimistic that that will happen. And I think it's really important that it does. Thanks for sharing that. And our last question is, how can students and others who are interested in getting involved in sleep research, how can how can they do that? So I will speak to college students or graduate students. That's from a practical standpoint. That's where you're going to have access to to research opportunities, though it's certainly not out of the question for high school level students to have some opportunities. So unlike when I started being a student, when I started being a student, a graduate student looking at sleep back in the 90s, there were a handful of institutions where you could sort of go to do high-end cutting-edge research. And you could count them on your hands. There's Stanford, Harvard, Wisconsin, a couple of schools in Pennsylvania. And I don't want to leave anybody. I mean, there, there are others, um, but there were, it was a short list. These days, most major institutions are going to have some research group. Minnesota does. Mayo does. Mayo actually is one of the, one of the early ones in the game. Most major institutions will have some research group and often multiple research groups doing sleep epidemiology, but also all the way to the most basic sleep science, neuroscience, basic lab work. Uh, It's become a part of public health in, in the last couple of decades as well. So yeah, if you're at a major research institution, there'll most likely be a research program where a student can Google around, find out who those investigators at that institution are, and then just cold call them. I mean, sleep scientists are super friendly and we entertain people reaching out to us, students reaching out to us all the time. The other- This this just proves that. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, those opportunities are- why now? Now, if you're in an institution that isn't research focused or is a smaller research focused institution, you might not have a, a dedicated sleep research group there. We work with uh, other institutions all the time. So that's another case of just if you're a student who's interested but can't find a sleep research group or sort of the right type of sleep research at your institution, you can Google around and find folks who do the type of research you're interested in. And again, you can just give them a cold call and see what sort of opportunities might be available. The other thing that's happened recently in this last five years, and I alluded to it before when I talked about the National Sleep Research Resource, is that there is a wide range. It's not just our data, but there are other research groups who put sort of publicly accessible. And there's, there's, a, there's a barrier, but it's a, generally a, a pretty easy barrier to get through. Um, you just have to show that you're doing genuine science with the um, 
with your proposal to the National Research Resource. We have student requests from around the world, including high school students, but most often it'll be somebody working on a thesis or a dissertation project, and they're in Asia or Europe or South America or North America, and they submit a request for access to our data. And I think the most recent one we looked for, there was five requests from a week. And I think four of the requests were thesis projects. Does that ring that sounds right? right? Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was just from different areas of the world, uh, students asking for access to our mostly publicly available data to do research on their thesis projects. And some of the institutions I know, and they have sleep research specialists programs there, and some I don't. I mean, these might be students where they have an advisor who's interested, but there's not a big sleep program there. And certainly from the high school students that we've seen requests for, they don't come from institutions that have big research, sleep research programs. So that's another way to do it. They're publicly accessible data. If you say that you're interested in doing research for science, sleep research or science will generally say, okay, you're good. You can use the data for that. I'm a little bit uncomfortable because it, you know, we used to have sort of tight control over, you know, making sure that the people who used our data knew what they were getting into because there's some nuance and, you know, scientific sleep data, but this is the way things are going, publicly accessible data. And I think there, while there are costs, the benefits outweigh them readily. Mm-hmm. There are hundreds of people looking at our data, asking questions that we just don't have time to ask. Most of them are students. Interesting. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your expertise with us. Do either of you have anything else that you would like to add? No, I can't think of anything. No, this is great. Thanks for inviting us on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. If you would like to learn more about this topic, we've attached resources for you in the description of this episode. Thank you again for joining us today. We hope we'll see you next time.